0: just as delightful, and uh, we're glad for that. Let us turn to the word for today, the first reading from Jeremiah. In about the 6th century B.C., the people of Israel had been captured and overrun by Babylon and taken into captivity. And in midst of that despair, the prophet Jeremiah wrote to them, seeking to encourage them, them and tell them how to to live and respond to their circumstances. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And then from the Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus providing healing for ten lepers. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of the hearts of each one of us be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes I think it's possible to find a thread of commonality between two incidents, two stories that are utterly different. And I think this morning's lectionary readings are an example. Not only are the two stories different, but they, they seem to come from an entirely different plane. But the common thread between them is that of humility, which is defined as a modest sense of one's own importance. Frankly, we ought not to be surprised to find humility in the scripture, because there are many times when it's there, the great prophet Jeremiah who wrote the, the one passage is one who demurred when God first called him because he said he wasn't worthy. We're told in the Gospels that Bethlehem was chosen as the place for Jesus to be born because it was least of all of the towns of Judah. Jesus began his great sermon on the mount with the Beatitudes, a couple of them which specifically praised and blessed Jesus those who are inferior. Blessed are those who mourn, and especially blessed are those who are meek. And how often in his teaching did Jesus remind us that the last shall be first? No, it shouldn't surprise us that humility is important to any of the stories in Scripture. The lesson from Jeremiah finds the Hebrew people facing a despairing time. Although their badge of honor down through the years was that they were the chosen people of God, more often than not, they found themselves overrun by stronger nations nearby. And Israel seldom had times of preeminence. In this occasion, where they not only vanquished, but they'd been carried off into captivity in another land, they were exiles in an alien place. This contradiction between what they assumed God intended for them, the chosen race, and their fate as people in an alien land left them mad as hops. We're all a little like they. When something doesn't go our way, when some tragic event happens to us, we lift our eyes to God and lift our fist and say, Why God? Why me? Jeremiah didn't want them to wallow in this kind of anger and self-pity. He tells them to accept what God has done to them. And note he says that God has done it to them. Build houses, plant fields, and so forth. Rather than grumbling arrogantly, find the humility to make the most of the circumstances that have come to you. I had a seminary roommate, Alan has indicated that's a long time ago. I had a seminary roommate who had been a missionary to Korea. Larry and a friend were captured on the first day of the Korean War, June of 1950, and held for 34 months in captivity where they faced privation and torture. Larry says the thing that helped him survive those months was the fact that his companion, Chris Jensen, was a man of such humility that he never compromised his dignity in the midst of the indignities that were placed upon them, And his strength was Larry's inspiration. Perhaps similarly, one doesn't have to agree with everything about John McCain to be able to recognize that the humility by which he endured his time in a Vietnamese prison 30-some years ago sets him aside as a man of unusual stature. In the face of that kind of despair and privation, Jeremiah pleaded with his people to be humble, to accept their fate, and to continue to live lives in fidelity to God. The second story that, of Jesus' healing of the lepers is really quite different. The primary difference is that the, the Israelites had been in despair and the lepers had an opportunity to celebrate. Now, note how the story unfolds. The ten lepers come to Jesus asking for mercy. He simply sends them to the priest. But on the way, while they're walking, they're clean. They're clean. A time of rejoicing. And then one of them turns back. That's the critical point. One turns back and offers to Jesus his thanks, his humility. He prostrated himself before Jesus to offer that thanks. Years ago, a friend told me that it's easier to accept and receive criticism than praise. Sounds a bit unusual at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that's often true. Maybe as we have more practice receiving criticism. Our world is filled with people who put down others even in jest. Watch the the joke lines on television and see how often those are joke lines related to some kind of put-down humor. In a perverse sort of way, I suggest to you it's easier to be proud than humble especially when there's something to celebrate. The lepers had something to celebrate. No wonder they were reluctant to come back to Jesus. They'd been unclean all of this time, and suddenly they're clean. Not only do they want to rejoice, they want to go and do things that hadn't been available to them before. Go to places where they had been banished. In March of 1990... I was a guest in the United Methodist Seminary in Bad kloster That's a mouthful. Bad kloster in what was then still East Germany. It was only a few months after the wall had fallen. My host told me that when the wall fell, he put his wife and his three children in their little Wartburg, Wartburg car, got on the Autobahn, and started driving west until they reached the defunct checkpoint and drove right into West Germany. He said, unfortunately, it wasn't too many miles till they caught up to many, many, many other cars doing the same thing, and traffic came to a stop, and they waited and waited, and finally turned around. (laughs) They were that excited. They turned around and drove back home. But they'd had the experience of crossing the border without stopping and doing something that had been denied to them before. There's a special joy in that. Lepers, I think, felt the same thing. But only one, only one had the humility to return and thank Jesus. Almost 45 years ago, I was pastor of a new church that was getting ready to move into its new building. After five and a half years of meeting in a township municipal building, we were about to have our own church. One man in particular in that congregation was so instrumental in what we had done. He guided our building program through the years. And during the months of construction, he spent more time than I'm willing to admit being on site almost as our own job superintendent. December 8th, 1963, was the day. Dick wandered around the church. Wasn't that big. but Wandered around it, checking that everything was in order, receiving the joy and congratulation of the people. And when we met, he said to me, Bill it's hard to be humble today. And I couldn't blame him. But in a real sense, I don't think Dick was being that proud or arrogant. I think he was actually more humble than we realized. Like no one else, Dick knew of the humility of the many who had worked so hard, given so much, and sacrificed so continually to bring us to that point. He had the humility to know that it was God's presence among us that had made possible that great day. You see, pride prompts us to think we deserve our good fortune. Humility prompts us to give thanks and to work harder that we have an opportunity to deserve what God has given to us. In my years at the Methodist Theological School, I supervised students in their student parishes. And each summer, as a portion of them were assigned as student pastors, not on staff, but as a student pastor, where they would be there on their own in a congregation. I would go out and meet with them and their staff parish relations committee. In the midst of our conversation, I would say to them, do you know every church that I've ever served... There's been at least one person who thought I was better than I was. I said, you know what that does? It makes you want to live up to that expectation. So I said to the people, give that gift to your pastor. Expect him or her to be better than he or she may be. And God will help that person become all that you hope is possible. I've often wondered if about those ten lepers that were cured, what happened afterwards. My sense is that the humility of the one who came back to thank Jesus was an indication that his life was already transformed and greater things were yet awaiting him. And I've often suspected that the nine who didn't come back went on to find some other debilitating circumstance in their life. Humility is not a mark of one who is weak. Humility is the badge of one who has linked heart and mind to the power and love of God. The lectionary had a third reading for today. We didn't try to read all of them, but I want to pick up one verse of that. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he says something that I believe calls for humility on the part of those who were listening then and those of us today. Paul, the great leader of the early church, was a great mentor. He wanted young Timothy to understand everything, everything, that helped the young churches where Timothy was involved. You understand that in the early church, Christians were a distinct minority at best understood and at worst persecuted. Many of the books of the New Testament are letters Paul wrote to the churches advising them how to deal with this kind of problem or another, not just telling them the, the- theological perspective that would encourage them, but helping them in the practical issues. And one of the things that concerned him was the number of times that people debated and wrangled that term that Betsy used this morning, wrangled. Uh, over issues in the life of the church. So Paul said to Timothy, tell them this, tell them this. They are to avoid wrangling over words which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Good advice. But it takes humility to implement that kind of advice. We love to be right. We love to make our point. We love to have... People recognize that we are right. We demand that we are affirmed. That's human nature. And such was the squabbling where Timothy was. That wrangling was not an attempt to get to some better level of understanding. It was to overcome others with words, to outdo them in the debate of the day. This utter lack of humility threatened to destroy the fabric of the church before it was yet even fully mature. Sometimes I think today's political rhetoric is like that. Some politicians spend more time crafting words than creating policy that can serve us. They spend more time attacking some semantic miscue on the part of their opponent than engaging the ideas that the opponent has suggested. And friends, if that's true in politics, it's even true in our United Methodist Church. There are those who spend more time wrangling about the right wording and the correct thinking that there's no time left for redemptive living. I just finished reading a scholarly book on the Salem witch trials. I was struck by a number of things there. I was struck by the fact that the, the time of the Salem witch trials in 1692 occupied only a matter of a few months. I was struck by the fact that many who were convicted were convicted on the basis of confessions that they got out of them by torture. And I was struck by the sheer hysteria, a kind of a patriotic hysteria that allowed this stain on our nation to take place at all. In reading the story, some of the quotes, and some of the quotes from the hearings, I came to another conclusion as well. That sometimes they spent more time wrangling over the words that people had said instead of looking at the exemplary lives that they had led. Before some malcontent had made an accusation against them, they needed to recall Paul's advice. They are to avoid wrangling over words which does no good, but only ruins those who are listening. And friends, what happened at the end of the 17th century New England can and does continue in some forms in present time. There are those who argue, and argue vehemently, that only certain words can be used in the way that we pray, and only certain words can be used as we ordained men and women into ministry. Or like the McCarthy era, era, there are those who want every seminary professor in our United Methodist schools to adhere to their specific wording about what to believe about Jesus. They forget that we worship a living God. Our God isn't static. Our God isn't dead. It's a living God who continues to reveal self to us and to disclose new insights and inspiration all of the time. They need to recall Paul's instructions to avoid wrangling over words which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. God calls us every day to be faithful disciples of Jesus, loyal members of the church, and willing workers in the efforts for God's kingdom for which we prayed only minutes ago in the Lord's Prayer. We're to be humble in times of despair, as Jeremiah said to the exiles. We're to be humble in the times of celebration, as when cured of the leprosy. And we're to be humble as we profess our faith to those who wait to hear the word of salvation. Ironically, maybe a non-Christian can help us here. Mahatma Gandhi was perhaps the most Christian non Christian. That's a, an oxymoron, I know. The most Christian non Christian that the world has ever known. He confessed that Jesus was the most important influence in his life, and it's reported that he carried the New Testament with him regularly. Once, when asked the secret of spiritual power, he offered these suggestions Follow the examples of Jesus. Do so without amending Jesus to your own views. Love people and study other religions. Humility wasn't forgotten by Gandhi. It certainly wasn't overlooked by Jesus. Now God asks us to make humility, that forgotten virtue, the cornerstone of our lives. Amen.